Please join me in welcoming Professor Sue Robson. Thank you very much, Linda. Um, well, like Anna and Philippa, I haven't got any new uh, data to present. I'm not presenting any of my own research. So I wanted just to, to have a think about internationalisation in terms of, have we got anything left to say about it? <laughs> Is it a term that we've used and abused for long enough now? Is it a term that we need to redefine? Um, or do we need to replace it with something else? And if so, what? So looking at some of the, um, the issues around this contested concept and looking at some of the conceptual and methodological challenges around um, using and researching this term, internationalisation. So of course, as Anna set out beautifully this morning, internationalisation is a key contemporary debate uh, within our sector. We um, have been conducting international scholarly exchange for many years, but the, the range and complexity of international activities has increased rapidly and become a very key strategic area for many universities. And perhaps in other parts of the world, it's a much newer agenda than it is for some of us sitting in this room. The economic imperatives driving university internationalisation strategies are widely acknowledged. Globalisation, the knowledge economy, advances in technology have all advanced and intensified the internationalisation of HE and Jiang and Altbach are just two of the people who've, who've written about that. The transformative trends brought about by the recession transformative in terms of institutional and organisational level internationalisation have created this heightened international economic competition and growth in the non-for-profit sector, sorry, for the, in the for-profit sector, uh, as well as the allegedly not-for-profit sector. Newcastle University calls itself a charity. Is it a charity? Of course it's for profit. So the economic recession has shifted how we perceive ourselves as institutions. And here we've got a, an image from the bank of, of images that Newcastle uses in terms of its corporate internationalisation, its corporate cosmopolitanism. One of our lovely students at Newcastle Airport there to welcome our incoming international students. Uh, with a lovely sign in several languages welcoming those incoming students. Part of the corporate cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism of Newcastle University is we are an international institution because we've got lots of international staff and lots of international students. But does it go any deeper than that? As Anna said this morning, the, the, the marketisation discourse that, that permeates the agenda it may be inevitable in, in the current funding climate, but is there a danger that it steers our thinking away from more radical reassessment of HE purposes, priorities and processes that internationalisation requires? Uh, and Anna quoted Devita and Case this morning um, on that need for really rethinking what it is that we're all about. So, after a period of fairly intense um, forward movement in internationalisation over a couple of decades is internationalisation losing its way. At a NAFSA Association of International Educators conference in 2011, Jane Knight suggested 
that internationalisation was having an identity crisis. And uh, Brandenburg and DeWitt said that we'd lost sight of what it was all about and actually we were witnessing the end of internationalisation. Well, four years on, we're still here and we're still talking about it. We're still engaged with it. What do we mean by it at the corporate level? What do we mean by it at an individual level? Can we marry the marketisation agenda with probably a more values-driven and social purpose-oriented agenda that drives most of us to continue to engage with internationalisation? Can internationalisation be transformative? Can it be transformative at an institutional level? Can it be transformative at an individual level? If transformation is possible, what must be changed? Who is affected? And what are the underpinning processes involved? What are the conceptual and methodological challenges? Can the social goals of internationalisation create what Adora Hoppers calls uh, a set of potent heuristics for generative theorisation? Can we address this under-theorised area and use the social goals of internationalisation to give us a more palatable um, and perhaps more conceptually sound um, redefinition of internationalisation? What transformative actions would we need to take for this to be brought to bear? So, back to Brandenburg and DeWitt. In the end of internationalisation, they track the conceptual development of internationalisation from isolated and uncoordinated and generally low-prestige international activity in the 1970s and 1980s, and then there was research, slightly higher prestige within most institutions. And then in the late 80s, internationalisation began to increase in importance and diversity, moving from simple exchange of staff and students to the big business of mass recruitment and um, from activities impacting on small elite groups <coughs> to this mass phenomenon that we see today. Alongside this development came the development of globalisation and, and loaded with negative connotations, whereas internationalisation became the white knight of higher education, uh, with its orientation towards Jane Knight heavily influenced this agenda, promoting peace, mutual understanding, justice, equity and so on. Yet activities more related to the concept of globalisation have increasingly become associated with internationalisation. Higher education is a tradable <coughs> commodity more exchange, more degree mobility, more recruitment. Perhaps losing sight of some of the more innovative developments, such as the ones Philippa was talking about, the emergence of the digital citizen. Um, and so maybe to regain the true meaning of internationalisation, we need to think of it as a means to an end, a process, rather than a state. Going back to the image on the former slide, Newcastle would claim to be an international university because of the volume of international staff and students. Actually, are we sufficiently engaged in the process of becoming international and shifting the culture of the institution? So we can't continue to assume that certain types of mobility and other international activities and volume of international bodies 
is necessarily in itself going to make us more international. We can't assume that the purposes of a university's internationalisation efforts is purely to improve global brand or standing. That, that confuses international market campaigns with our true internationalisation plans and ambitions. The former is a promotion and branding exercise, the latter is a strategy that requires us to dig deeper, to place the options within a new set of values and rationales for teaching, research and service functions of our institutions. And again, quoting Knight there, 2011. So Brandenburg and De say, to sort of capture all that, we have to ask ourselves, why do we do certain things and do they really help us in achieving the goal of quality of education and research in a globalised knowledge society? We have to regard mobility and other activities as what they really are. They are instruments and therefore by definition not, not goals in themselves. And moving on to some other conceptualizations in, in recent literature. Um, Hudzik, uh, past president and board uh, chair of the board of directors of NAFSA, the uh, Association of International Educators, and a dean of international studies, and then vice president for global engagement and strategic projects at Michigan State University, suggests that um, universities today have to be reminded of their core mission, namely the production of graduates who can live, work, and contribute to a global economy, uh, who can be productive citizens. He challenges us to think about internationalising curriculum content in terms of the context in which we set learning, the values that underpin that learning, and the understandings that we hope to promote through teaching and learning experiences. That requires us to rethink the processes of teaching, the processes of assessment, and perhaps particularly the skills and competences that we as teachers but also our students require for life and work in, in this more diverse world. This requires, he suggests, commitment confirmed through action to infuse international and comparative perspectives throughout our teaching, research and service missions so that we shape the international ethos of our institutions through a values-based approach that touches the entire higher education enterprise. So a new conceptualization of comprehensive internationalization. There are also social transformation models of internationalization permeating the literature now, suggesting a need for radical reform to curricula again, but and also to foster engaged global citizenship. And yet there's very little, Hansen suggests, written about how we depict individuals and their teachers within these social transformation models of internationalization. Hansen's work um, tracked and evaluated a six-year project um, looking at two interdisciplinary global health courses which were taught using transformative pedagogies. The evaluation showed promise that this model of internationalized curricula 
can foster personal transformations and global citizenship through creating bridges of understanding between local and global issues, in this case health issues, and the increasing potential for social transformation through the process of internationalising the curriculum. Jones and DeWitt also look at this model of social transformation. They suggest that the, the concept of globalised internationalisation, so these two terms that are sometimes perceived as conflicting, being brought together and integrated, um, requiring us to put political and economic rationales in context by measuring the things that are really important, not simply those that can easily be measured. So attempting to learn from partners and to capture the diversity of policy and practice, uh, the links between the international and the intercultural within the curriculum, within teaching, and with learning that goes on at our <coughs> own campuses and our campuses abroad. So there's a notion of civicness underpinning transformative internationalisation here. This has been really problematic at Newcastle. We, we got a new Vice-Chancellor in 2006, and as a Russell Group University, inevitably, we prided ourselves on our research. And Chris Brink came to Newcastle and rebranded us as a civic institution. Now that caused consternation and confusion and a bit of dismay, and unfortunately, for a while, was misinterpreted as a very local agenda. Um, civicness as engagement with local civic society. In fact, what he meant by this was engagement with civicness internationally. And the way he's, he's translated that now in a kind of a branding for the university is that we've got to stop thinking about what we're good at in terms of international prestigious research, international rankings, and focus more on what we're good for. So how our research actually addresses societal challenges. So it's, it's, it's been a, a kind of evolutionary process to realise, I think for him and for the institution, to turn around this perception that civicness isn't about localness, it's actually about a social model of internationalisation with an agenda to address societal challenges globally. So I think that's, that's also what Hansen is addressing here. Back to the home campus. I know it isn't always sunny, but the <laughs> students are always smiling. Um, the, some of the myths that uh, Jane Knight tries to address are uh, around the presence of international staff and students on campus and how transformative that can actually be unless we do something more than simply put bums on seats. Yeah. So foreign students on campus don't automatically produce a more internationalised institutional culture or more intercultural experiences. The mobility of staff and students may have altruistic aims, which are um, articulated by people like Val Clifford and uh, Catherine Montgomery, um, but we, we need to do something a bit more tangible to create a more values-driven and transformative internationalisation at a personal level, not only for our international staff and students, but for our home staff and students too. 
The human factors that determine the scope and the penetration and content of, of such an international transformation agenda um, are very difficult to control. And some of my own research suggests that our home students actually perceive of us as an international institution simply because of the number of international students on campus. But they don't engage unless we promote and um, uh, encourage and push them in the direction of, of engagement. So it's important that the transitions for individuals and communities are really nurtured. How, how can university staff and services help students to negotiate cultural, linguistic and disciplinary contexts so that they do have a much more intercultural and potentially transformative experience. Jeanette Ryan's written for many years about the problems international students have making the inroads into local communities and getting to know local students. So we've got somehow to find ways to bridge that divide. Another challenge around addressing this issue of cultures and perspectives having opportunities to meet on our campus um, would, would be around you know, really trying to address the privileging of westernised or European conceptualisations and approaches in what we do on campus over more indigenous knowledges. And again, Adora Hoppers, Cross, uh, Nlanga and Ojo have, have written about this from, from an African perspective. Just to complicate matters even further, Caruana and Plona and uh, Adora Hoppers again and Hackman have all linked debates about internationalisation at this personal transformative level to um, discussions about equality and diversity, about human rights, ethics and values. So highlighting the need for practical actions that can form a foundation for a balanced and um, integrated university experience. I really like David Killick's take on this. David Killick talks about our duty really as institutions to enable us, staff and students, to grow beyond ourselves rather than constraining us within our own world views. So here, taking a model of global citizenship that's primarily about seeing the self in the world, the, the one in which we dwell among others. Killick focuses on experiences of individuals with significant others. And uh, he conducted a three-year study um, among international student, undergraduate student <coughs> communities. Um, and students particularly who'd participated in mobility activities. I think there's another one of Jane Knight's myths here, mobility automatically is transformative. That's not necessarily the case. Killick's participants reveal how their lived experience of otherness through mobility um, in, into subjective encounters enabled them to move their identities forward, to see themselves with others to personalise hitherto distant places and practices. So in the context of international mobility, encountering difference doesn't depend on necessarily the crossing of national cultures, but on recognising otherness in all that we engage with and in ourselves. 
most of the encounters in, in David Killick's study um, took place outside of the culture of the host institution. Um, but perhaps it can take place within and within our local communities too. And there's a massive opportunity, I think, underexploited to experience otherness within our local ethnic diverse communities. I've written myself about this as a responsible approach to internationalisation. If we aim um, to transform individual learning, individual sense of self in the world, is that necessarily at odds with this corporate agenda, the, the marketisation neoliberal agenda? I actually wonder whether with the increase on uh, an emphasis on public accountability in higher education and the requirement for universities to evidence that they're producing employable global graduates, whether actually these two agendas can start to merge. If we can demonstrate how we are able to facilitate individual transformations, if we can demonstrate this, the, the um, capacity to um, engender in students the generic capabilities that are valued by employers in a global economy, such as open and reflective behaviours, um, self-management, conceptual and analytic skills and other competences that are considered necessary to life and work in an international setting. Surely that's also useful to our branding, our global recruitment sort of initiatives. So it seems to me we just need to achieve a better balance right now between the, the corporate internationalisation of entrepreneurial activity, recruitment, maintaining our place in the rankings, our branding, with the more social and values-based agenda, the creation and dissemination of knowledge, the personal and professional development of our staff and students, capacity building internationally, internationalisation of the curriculum, to build into cultural knowledge and understanding and of course the world-class research that's almost always been part of our internationalization agenda so have we achieved or can we achieve that kind of balance some of us in the room were involved directly with the HEA over the last couple of years in developing an internationalization framework for the sector which was really trying to address this rebalancing of what we understand and what we enact as internationalization in our institutions. Can I just ask how many of you have come across the Higher Education Academy's internationalization framework? Okay, quite a few, thank you. So, um, the intention of the framework was obviously focused on enhancing the student experience and providing a global student experience. That's always at the heart of international uh, agendas for the HEA and, and, and all of their agendas are focused on the student experience. This particular piece of work came from a request from the sector for institutions that were trying to take stock 
in the way that this presentation is trying to present a, a position of needing to take stock again uh, in 2015. And so we worked through a fairly extensive process of <coughs> consultation across the sector to come up with a framework that focused on the activities that comprise our internationalization agenda as institutions, the knowledges that we hope to promote, the values that underpin those activities and knowledges, and at the heart of all of that, to achieve cultural change within our institutions. Um, the framework wasn't intended to be prescriptive or all-embracing. It was intended to be a tool. So it intended to be a tool for self-audit, self-reflection, potentially a communication tool. How do we communicate to others what we intend within our programmes, within our disciplines, within our institutions as an internationalisation agenda? It was intended as a professional development tool. How can we work with our colleagues within our institutions to rethink the activities, knowledges and values that underpin our programmes, our teaching, our assessment and our research? So it could also be a curriculum review tool and it could be a planning tool. Can I just pause for a minute and invite you to... to without moving furniture perhaps because we haven't probably got enough time to do that just to talk with the people immediately next to you about the potential for a tool such as this in terms of self-reflective self-audit tool how often do we think about the activities that we engage in the knowledges that underpin those activities and, and the values that underpin both the activities and the knowledge that we're trying to promote. If we are claiming to be international as institutions, what part do we play in that as individuals? To what extent is your work or your study underpinned by internationalist values? Does that make sense? Okay. Can I give you few minutes to think about and talk about that. <laughs> Already from that brief discussion, a well-intentioned tool to begin to engage people in discourse about internationalization is perceived as problematic because it's very anglo-centric it's perceived as very westernized in its orientation of course it was designed initially for the uk higher education sector so perhaps it can be forgiven for that but the hea of course wish their work to be taken up and hope it will be taken up internationally but is it in its itself problematic um, in, in its orientation, if we want it to be utilised in a, a wider uh, international environment. Any other comments on this as a tool to get the discussion started around internationalisation? Would we agree that as institutions, as a sector in the UK perhaps, we need to take stock? We need to take stock of where we are with internationalisation. 
it's it's quite a lot of nods around the room. Yeah, yeah, okay. So if this tool doesn't work, what, what do we need? How do we start the discourse? How do we maintain the discourse? Because I think my sense of this is you can't take your foot off the pedal. You know, mm. if internationalization is a process, we've got to keep people talking about these kinds of issues. But tools in themselves have inherent difficulties and limitations. Okay. So how do we move forward? <laughs> Philippa problematized the concept of cosmopolitanism, but others are offering it as a new definition. I've been thinking for years, internationalization's had its day, what else, but what else, what else do we call it? What else can we call it? Lily et al. suggests that for teaching and learning a way forward is cosmopolitanism as a, an appropriate <coughs> theory to underpin student learning frameworks. Um, Caruana has written in, in a similar fashion. Um, Rhodes and Cellini, Ritzfi have all talked about cosmopolitanism in relation to the student experience. Is this new thinking or is it simply new wine in old bottles? Um, in the image down here we've got Diogenes. So we were talking about cosmopolitanism in 400 BC uh, from a philosophical perspective. Um, but uh, I've, I've also looked at the paper Philippa quoted by um, uh, uh, Sidhu and Dalalba, and, and they talk about cosmopolitanism in a very different way in that paper that I think still has some promise for us uh, as a way to help us move forward. So Diogenes, you know, when asked which country he came from, said, I am a citizen of the world. There was this philosophic cosmopolitanism which seems to resonate to me with, with what David Killock is talking about, self in the world. You know, it's a sense of openness, hospitality, ethics and values that I hope we would all aspire to and, and would hope that our students would aspire to. But what seems to be happening in new definitions of cosmopolitanism is a call towards more activism. You can't sit in your jug. Um, philosophizing, you have to actually get out there and do something, do something different. And Lily et al. come up with a, a, a set of what they call another toolkit, unfortunately, but an identity kit of markers um, of cosmopolitanism or, or global citizenship. Um, and some of the ways that they um, suggest we encourage global citizenship or enact global citizenship or cosmopolitanism um, that we should show courage to go on mobility experiences. We're not all very good at that. Um, that we should, if we can't be mobile, um, we should show courage to take on challenges locally, so internationalising our experience through local um, diversity and um, intercultural learning challenges. So mixing beyond our normal social peers, engaging and working with different others, um, engaging in learning activities out of our comfort zone, questioning our assumptions, imagining other perspectives and possibilities, showing awareness of self and others, making the <coughs> interconnections of knowledge across complex local and global constructs and recognising the common humanity 
um, in all of us, working towards sustainability, environmental sustainability. So these are just some of the dimensions of the framework that Lily et al. offer to encourage us to be more actively cosmopolitanism, which is, in Ritzvi's terms, a mode of learning about and ethically engaging with new social formations. So cosmopolitanism requires the development of new perspectives on knowing and interacting with others, learning about ourselves, a different view of culture as dynamic and creative, and viewed as always in a state of becoming as a result of interactions of various kinds, Ritzvi's notions again. Cosmopolitanism can be emancipatory, Sidun Dalalba, if it contributes to rebalancing the corporate, the political and the social globalization agendas that permeate internationalization. So is this a useful term or is it one that we've also bandied about for too long and is also misaligned, uh, misconstrued and confused. <coughs> I think there's still some promise here um, and if it does promote emancipatory uh, internationalization and helps us to balance uh, our corporate agendas with the social values of internationalization then it's worth not throwing out uh, quite yet. Um, that's probably all I, I want to say at the moment, Linda, and I'd be really interested to hear whether anybody has some terminology that will help us to move this debate forward and to combine the more values-driven goals of internationalisation with the inevitable neoliberal corporate agenda of our institutions. <laughs>